good to see everybody here. Glad that y'all are uh, here with us and uh, hope that you're uh, having a good week or had a good week and I uh, hope y'all are all doing well. And we're continuing our study. We're finishing up the Song of Solomon and talking about relationships. And uh, we're in the last section or session, which is 13. And this is uh, taken from various verses in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapters 5 through 8. And um, basically this continues, again, Song of Solomon, a lot of flowery language, a lot of metaphors and symbolism, and, and, and it's not, um, it, it is still applicable to our lives, but it's applicable to a very specific part of our lives. And so we need to understand that and take that as it is. Um, but again, this is about how the man and the woman are supposed to continue their relationship and strengthen their relationship. And in this uh, section, in these passages, the woman and the man have gone from being in love to being married. And so now we're looking at how they relate to each other when they're married. And most of what we're going to read today is from the woman's viewpoint. Um, but if you read through Song of Solomon 5-8, through 8, you will see some of the things that the man says as well. But um, they are learning to grow, and they're learning how to resolve conflict and how to be stronger in their love for each other. And the man talks about how he loves her beauty, and he uses flowery word pictures to describe her beauty and the depth of his love for her and his desire to be with her. And then she responds by saying how much in love with him she is and how much she is committed to him. And basically this is a um, passage of commitment to each other. And this teaches us, this is God's way of teaching us what it takes to be committed to the one you have married. And when we say till death do us part, this is God's way of saying, this is what you do. This is how you make it happen till death do us part. And um, I think our world could be vastly improved if people would take these lessons to heart. Because the divorce rate is over 50% and growing. And it also is, if you take into account those people that refuse to get married and simply want to live with each other, then it becomes even worse. So marriages in this country have basically been in a wreck for many, many years. And people don't take marriage seriously anymore. And one of the biggest things, and, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here a little bit, but one of the biggest problems is that it used to be a stigma when you got divorced. When you got divorced, people said, oh, that person got divorced. That's shameful, sad. It's a bad thing. But now they throw parties when you get divorced. Now they say, let's celebrate, you're free. And that is the exact wrong way to look at it. A divorce is a terrible thing. And it destroys, and it ruins, and it hurts everyone. Even those who might be better off being divorced, it still hurts. And so... One of the biggest problems is that we have gone from saying divorce is bad to saying divorce is a good option if you don't like the person you're with. 
Yes, Joy. What's really sad, too, is the poor old children get caught up in it. Yep. And they are, they are victims of it as well. Like I said, nobody wins in a divorce. Um, I think, too, it's a, a sign of the times or whatever you want to call it because that's not the only thing that people overlook. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, they try to justify. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it is an outgrowth of the free love movement from 60s, really late 50s, early 60s. <laughs> See, you didn't do it right. You didn't get that free love. <laughs> but uh, anyway, this is about the way that the woman and the man commit to each other, even in the midst of issues. And we're going to see this in um, chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. Starting in verse 6, the woman is speaking, and she says, I opened to my love, but my love had turned and gone away. My heart sank because he had left. I sought him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. Now, this is the woman speaking in a symbolic way, and it's meant to be a dream. She's relating a dream that she had that her husband, the man that she loved, had left and gone away. And her heart sank. Her heart was sad. She was in despair because he wasn't there. And look what it says. It says, I sought him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. So this is the depth of her love and commitment to him that she, when he turned away, she sought him. She didn't give up. She didn't quit. She didn't say, oh well, that's it. She kept on looking for him. She kept on calling for him. And this is a lesson. What we take from this is the, the way to keep your marriage strong, the way to demonstrate that commitment is simply to be there. In this world, and it's something that's been going on ever since man fell from grace, but especially now we see it that people simply aren't there. The woman might say, I need a night away from you. I need a night with my girlfriends. I need to get away from my family because y'all are too much. Well, believe me, I know that feeling. My mom used to say the same thing about me. Um, but uh, the husband might say, I've got to have a night with my buddies just for me. I've got to go away just for me to get away from you. And what does that say? You annoy me. You're getting on my last nerve. And I don't want to be around you anymore. I don't want to be here. That's saying, I don't want to be with you. And that's what we do, especially because we have so many outlets for our entertainment value now. We can go so many places and we can do so many things to get away from our significant other. And so one of the biggest things, the hurdles that we overcome in a marriage, in a commitment, is the lack of the physical presence. And sometimes it's not even the lack of physical presence, it's the lack of mental presence. We talked about the, that before. The husband comes home and says, leave me alone. I'm going to sit in my chair and watch my TV and drink my beer. You call me for supper, and then I'm coming back to my chair. Or the wife says, 
I don't want to talk to you because I can't even look at you right now. I'm going to go hide in the bathroom. I'm going to go take a four-hour bath. <laughs> and then you never see her again. Uh, so it's the lack of being there. And what this demonstrates is that he left. And that hurt. She was hurt because he wasn't there. And he might have been physically there, but he might not have been emotionally or mentally there. He might not have been physically there. We don't know. We just know that he's gone. And it hurts her. And if he was committed to her and she did the same thing, he would be hurt too. It's about being there with them, for them, at all times. That's what it takes to make a commitment. If you can't do that, then don't get married. If you can't do that, then you don't need to get married because a marriage is a commitment for, for all your life. It's supposed to be. And again, like we talked about before, the reason God made it that way is because God knew how much hurt comes from divorce. He knew the pain that it would cause. And so he said, y'all don't need to do this. This is a bad thing. It's going to cause problems. Be committed no matter what. Um, verse 7, she continues her dream and she says, The guards who go about the city found me. They beat and wounded me. They took my cloak from me, the guardians of the walls. Now this is interesting. If you remember in the last lesson, she, the, the guards were in her dream and she sought out their help. My love has gone away. Where has he gone? Can you help me find him? But look what happens this time. The guards don't help her. In fact, they beat her. Again, this is a dream. This is symbolism. But the guards beat her. That is a demonstration, a symbolism of the physical wounds that she suffered in her heart because her, her husband, the man that she loved, was not there. It is a demonstration of the hurt, the pain that she was feeling. That's what it takes to make a commitment. I love you so much that when you're gone, when you leave me, I feel physical pain. It physically hurts me. And then the next part of that verse, the second half, they took my cloak from me. Now, in the Israelite world, and in a lot of the cultures in the ancient world, that was a sign of humiliation. Because the cloak was to cover you from modesty. And if you had your cloak taken away, then that meant you were humiliated. And so not only did the guards beat her, but they humiliated her. And that is, again, a measure, a level of the pain that she is experiencing because of her lover, her husband, her, the man that she committed to is not there. And again, this could be reversed. And the same thing could happen for the man because he is committed to her. But this is what it, this is what it should do. If you are physically absent from your partner, from your husband or your wife, it should hurt. You should miss them. You shouldn't say, man, I'm glad he's gone. No matter how much you want to, you shouldn't say, man, I'm glad she's not here. It should hurt when they're not there. You should miss them. And so that's what God is trying to get us to understand. This is the level of commitment you're supposed to have to that person. This is the level of commitment. She continues her dream in verse 8. She says, young women of Jerusalem, I charge you. If you find my love, tell him that I am lovesick. 
<clears throat> now again, the young women had a part to play in the other dream where she charged them to tell the other women of Jerusalem, don't awaken love, don't have intimacy before you're married. She charged them to tell everybody that. Now she comes to the young women of Jerusalem again and she says, I have a new charge for you. If you find my love, tell him I'm missing. Tell him I'm lovesick for him. That I am physically hurt by his absence. This is because she cannot stand being without him. And the women of Jerusalem are the party line to the rest of the city to say, where is he? Tell me where he is because I can't live without him. This is her spreading the word any way that she can because she has to have her husband back. She can't do without him. So she says, tell him if you find him that I'm lovesick. Now it is a contrast to what might happen today. In our culture today, a woman might go out with her girlfriends and she wouldn't say, look, if you see my husband that's cheating on me or is absent from me or whatever, tell him I miss him. No, she'd say, man, I need to forget about that dummy and let's go have fun and party. You know, let's just go have a good time. That might be the way the world responds. The woman might say, he's gone? Good. I'm going to go celebrate. I'm going to go have a good time. Get my girlfriends together. We'll go out and hit the bars and have a good time and I'll forget all about it. That's in contrast to the way this woman feels. Tell him... I miss him. She doesn't say, if you see my husband, sock him in the mouth for me. If you see my husband, tell him I hate him. If you see my husband, tell him not to come home. No, she says, if you see my husband, tell him I miss him. That is the level of her commitment. And that is the contrast with the world. The world says, you're better off without him. You're better off without him. You don't need him. And if that's true, if you are better off without him, then you never should have married him in the first place. You never should have made that commitment to him in the first place because you didn't really love him. You told him yourself you loved him, but you didn't really love him. And that happens all too often. And that's the shallow love of the world. The true love is the one where the woman says, tell him I can't stand life without him. And I want him back. So that's what she's saying in this and the and the women in the dream are there to help her demonstrate how much she loves her husband. Um, verse 9, she continues, and this time the women ask her a question. Now, they didn't do this before. But the women ask her a question, and they say, What makes the one you love better than another, most beautiful of women? What makes him better than another that you would give us this charge? So this is a question to the woman. Why do you care? Why does this hurt you so? And this makes her think about it and say, well, why do I love him so much? And then she remembers why she loved him. She remembers what caused her to marry him in the first place. And she remembers why she misses him. And this is the question that she has to answer for herself. And the women are asking, well, there's lots of guys out there. Go find another one. He'll make you happy. And then she realizes the only one she wants is him. This is to make her understand what she meant when she committed to him. Because too often we let that love grow cold. We let that love die. 
And in the end, sometimes people stay together just because they don't know any other way to be. And that's sad. It's good that they stay together, but it's sad that they're doing it for the wrong reason. They need to re-examine, why did I marry this guy? Why did I marry this woman? What was it that made me fall in love with him in the first place? And if you go back and re-examine that love, you fall in love with them again. And so that's the question, and what she has to answer is, why did I fall in love with him in the first place? Why does not having him here make me miss him so much? And in verses 10 through 12, she answers this question. And again, very descriptive, very flowery language. I know that uh, you women talk about your husband like this, and you use these terms to describe your husband. And there's some other terms that the men use in, in the Song of Songs, and we won't talk about those, but how the men describe the women is a little different, but we won't talk about those, because I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Uh, but verse 10, 10 through 12, he's, she says this, My love is fit and strong. He's notable among 10,000. His head is pure as gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside flowing streams, washed in milk and set like jewels. Again, very flowery language. She's describing her love and she's describing his physical appearance. But there's more to it than just the physical. Because not only did his physical looks grab her attention, but his heart captured her love as well. There was more than just the looks. His eyes are like doves beside flowing streams. The eyes have been called the windows to the soul. When you, when you want to really know someone and to see if they're lying to you, you look in their eyes. Because the eyes will always tell the truth. The eyes cannot lie. At least most times. But when she says his eyes are like doves, she's saying, I looked in his eyes and I saw a beautiful soul. I saw someone I wanted to marry, not because of his physical appearance, which, let's be honest, he's pretty, he's pretty cute. He's pretty good looking. Uh, no, I looked in his eyes and I saw a wonderful man with a heart of gold and someone who was wise and kind and had a soul like a dove. And a dove was the symbol of peace, the symbol of purity, the symbol, a lot, a lot of times, the symbol of kindness and hope. Lots of other things. The dove was always a precious uh, creature to the Israelites in that ancient culture. The dove was a precious symbol. And she's saying, I fell in love with him. Not just because he was good looking. Because I looked in his eyes. And I saw something in there that I really loved. And it was inside. It was his heart that I fell in love with. And so, she is reminding herself. She's answering the women. They ask the question. And she's answering my guy, my love, he's not like anybody else. Not only is he physically beautiful, but he's emotionally beautiful on the inside. And he's a true man of God. And he's a wonderful man who I loved with all my heart, not just because he was good looking. And so she answers this question, and this reminds her why she loved him in the first place. And in the verses 13 through 16, she continues her flowery description. 
His cheeks are like beds of spice, mounds of perfume. His lips are lilies dripping with flowing myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is an ivory panel covered with lapis lazuli. How do you say that? His legs are alabaster pillars set on pedestals of pure gold. His presence is like Lebanon, as majestic as the cedars. His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. This is my love, and this is my friend, young women of Jerusalem. So he, she uses all these flowery language words to describe him. But at the very end, she says the most simple thing of all. This is my love. That's why I miss him. Because he's my friend. He wasn't just physically perfect. perfect. Uh, perfect. He wasn't just physically beautiful. He was my friend. I loved him because of who he was. Not what he looked like, but because of who he was. And that is the most important statement of all. This is my love. That's why he's more important than all the other men of Jerusalem. That's why I can't just go out and find a replacement. Because he, and only he, is my love. And that is what defines a relationship. That is what defines a commitment. If you can say that in your relationship, not just romantic relationships, but other relationships as well, this is the one that I love, then you can make a commitment to that person. If you can't say that, if you can't say in all sincerity, this is the only one that I love, and nobody else will make me happy, then you shouldn't commit to it. You shouldn't make that commitment. Because that's what marriage is, is saying... This is the only man, this is the only woman that can make me happy. That can be my love. Nobody else in all of creation can be my love. Only this one. And that's why when you get to the point where a man starts to look at another woman, say, maybe she can make me happy. Or a woman looks at another man and says, maybe he can make me happy then you'd better stop that right away. Because if that thought enters your head and it stays there, you've already lost. It's already over. Because once it takes hold, it will stay there and root and grow and hurt and wreck and destroy. It has to get out. You have to kick that thought out as soon as it comes up. You cannot allow that thought to stay there. Because that is the beginning of the end. So that is what it means to make a commitment. And I want to read this passage as well. This is from 1 Corinthians 6. This was our um, thought of the day. uh, The key doctrine. And it's in chapter 6. And I'm going to start in verse 15. And this is just Paul talking to the Corinthians and telling them how they are supposed to live. And why do I include this? Well... Because if you live like this, if you follow this, then you can make that kind of commitment that Solomon talks about in the Song of Solomon. If you live your life like this, then you can make your life and your relationship like Song of Solomon. But this is what he says in 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two become 
the, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So this goes hand in hand with what Solomon says in the Song of Solomon. Because he's talking about being in a committed relationship. Being totally devoted to the one that you love. Being faithful not being forsaking them and not running away from them, not hiding from them. But you cannot do that if you don't follow this principle right here in Corinthians. It says, the two become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one with him. It starts with Jesus Christ. Every relationship you have has to start with the relationship with Christ. You can be committed to your wife. You can be committed to your husband. You can be faithful. But if you're not faithful to Christ, then you don't have the strong relationship that will survive the problems that are described in the Song of Solomon. One thing cannot exist without the other. Without Christ, you don't have true love. All the poets, all the songwriters, all the screenplay writers, and all the, all the uh, authors of great books talk about true love. That is the highest ideal the world can see. True love. They talk about how great it is, how wonderful it is, how, how everybody should aspire to that one true love, and you only get one chance at true love. They always say, you only get one chance at true love. Which makes me wonder, what do they think they're doing when they divorce? You had your chance, you lost it, now you don't get true love, right? But anyway, that's another story. Uh, But you only get one chance at true love, and they only see true love as between a man and a woman. And they leave Jesus out of it. And that's why you don't find true love among those relationships, because they have cut Jesus out. And there is no true love without Jesus. Because Jesus was the perfect example of love. He sacrificed himself for us when we did not deserve it, when we did not earn it, when we could not make it happen on our own. That is true love. And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, he's talking about how to build that strong relationship. How to build that committed relationship. It has to begin and end with Jesus Christ. Without that, then your relationship will not last. And I think that's been proven time and time again. Thank you all very much.